Welcome back to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. On today's podcast, we have an expert in alternative assets and fund accounting. We welcome Gareth Hewitt, a fund accounting veteran and co-founder of Blackstone-backed Lemon Edge, to today's show. Gareth is the co-founder of Lemon Edge, where they've built a better, more efficient fund accounting software platform. With backing from Blackstone, Lauren Islovitz, who is the founder of pioneering fund accounting software Investran that was acquired by SunGuard, Sidekick, and others deep in the PE and alts world, Gareth has been building a next-generation fund accounting solution for GPs, fund admin, and investment platforms. LemonEdge's solution has a modern core infrastructure, full multi-currency partnership accounting, system-aware fund structures, and integrated waterfall technology. They've quickly built a platform that is already working with a number of the industry's largest GPs and asset managers. Gareth is an expert in alternative assets. He was head of UK product development and sales for eFront, a unicorn focused on software for alternative investment funds, which sold to BlackRock, and he also founded and ran a fund solutions business that was acquired by Centerbridge. Gareth and I had a fascinating conversation about why innovation in fund accounting is so critical to the evolution of private markets and how LemonEdge is on the cutting edge of transformation in fund accounting. We discussed how to take a problem that's historically been solved by spreadsheets to a low-code, no-code platform, how the fund accounting space can be digitized and customized, and how and when strategic investors can be valuable in the alt space. Thanks, Gareth, for coming on the show to share your wisdom and experience in private markets and let everyone know about the exciting business you're building at LemonEdge. We hope you enjoy. You can subscribe and read more about alts at my Substack at altgoesmainstream.substack.com. Hope you enjoy the show. Gareth, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Hi, thank you. Nice to be here. P- pleasure to have you on. You are an expert in fund accounting private markets. So where I want to start is, what is the most unbelievable thing that people would never realize about the world of fund accounting today? I would say it's probably how much of it is done in Excel, even with people who have systems. Break this down for me. You have multi-billion, if not close to trillion dollar firms and tons of money being tracked, investments being tracked, and people are using Excel? Yeah, depends on the complexity of the funds, but you can have 80 billion hybrid debt funds running purely in Excel. You've got private equity funds that will be running on systems. Certainly some of them will have systems, hedge funds will have systems, but there's a lot of work other than just putting in the basic accounting, like calculating management fees, doing hedging algorithms, calculating carry, pretty much most of that is predominantly done outside of systems in Excel anyway. Why is that? Well, (laughs) there's a number of reasons. One of them is every firm is innovative in how it approaches things. And while they'll say they're pretty standard, they always have their exceptions. And it's easier to do exceptions in Excel. On top of that, I'd say a lot of these things like management fee calcs, if you're a fund admin or others, you need to actually have proof 
workings. And software, certainly today in this space, tends to be a black box. So if you have to do the calculation in Excel anyway to prove it out, then you end up just using Excel. So does that make Excel have a tremendous amount of staying power? Or are there ways to innovate around Excel and going after, like Henry Ward from Carta, who's on this podcast, said, I like going after spreadsheet businesses. What do you make of that? I think that's right. It represents that there's tremendous opportunity. There's a ton of pretty well-known problems with doing these things in Excel, not least of which is just copying, pasting formulas and typos and errors like that. So you obviously want to have a system and a process behind it, but you want the advantages that Excel brings. So as you think about building a next generation fund accounting solution for alternative asset managers. How do you think about that last statement about bringing the functionality that Excel has to a more innovative, user-friendly solution? It is actually something we do. We've got a modern multi-ledger, multi-currency transaction engine that understands how to allocate through structures and all the rest of it. But one of the other things we've embedded is essentially like an Excel spreadsheet in the system for calculating algorithms. There's easy tools in the system that let you populate that with data. There's easy tools that let you take the data out and update transactions or whatever you want in the system. But people can take their management fee calcs or other kinds of calculations, put them and embed them in the system, get all the benefits of it not being a black box. They can visualize it. They've got a proof. It's auditable, all the rest of it. But none of the downsides. They can systemize it. They can lock it down. They can click one button and it's automated, all of those things. And you don't have to teach people how to do it because they're familiar with Excel. So they know how to build those complex algorithms without you teaching them. Interesting. So do you want to create a business that helps people be able to use a lot of the functionalities and ways they've had their workflows in the past, but also bring them into the future with something that goes beyond Excel? One of the things that we're big as we're a platform first and then we've got our private capital solution that sits on top and the algorithm technology is part of the platform it's there to say that particularly within financial services a big use case around excel is having that proof is having that auditability of how a calculation was performed and this gives you that without having to build your business or your operations around running everything in Excel. I want to take a step back for those who are less familiar with the world of fund accounting. What is fund accounting and why is it so critical to something like private markets? If we take a private equity fund, fund accounting is really about accounting for all the transactions that the fund itself is doing on behalf of its investors. And then being able to allocate those transactions out to the investors and provide investors with quarterly statements, notices for when they need money, when they're distributing money, and accounting for all of that correctly. It sounds, in theory, pretty simple, but obviously it can get complicated with funds having hundreds of legal vehicles they're allocating transactions through, hundreds of investors that they've got to slice everything up by, and so on. So how does fund accounting work today? We're just entering the market as a new startup, but the landscape for the last 20 years has been dominated by two or three legacy suppliers. I think that story is true, not just in private capital, but in lots of niches within financial services. We're essentially moving off of paper 20 years ago, 
onto the only systems that were around, those systems transformed into giants and monopolize or duopolize that market. And because they're in the back office accounting space, no one can get rid of them. And they're kind of stuck in this legacy software. What you're saying is the rip and replace is really challenging because they're so embedded in the systems and the workflows. How do you change that? Someone said to me, and I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember exactly, if you're going to be a disruptor, uh, it's not about just doing something a little bit better. We couldn't go into the fund accounting market having a better accounting engine. That's not going to fundamentally transform what they want. And it's not going to justify the cost of the decision of uprooting everything and replacing it with something that's just a little bit better. An example of that, if you go into the consumer space, is the iPhone. The iPhone is a great disruptor. But when it started, it wasn't a better phone and it wasn't a better music player. But it offered something genuinely new that made it better to use it for that reason. And the other things caught up. It became a better phone. It became a better music player. It became better at those things. And the same is true here. We've got a better accounting engine, sure, but we have other areas too. We are a platform first. We're saying that when we're working with these professional investment firms, they put a lot into their technology that they build proprietary systems around them. And one of the other big problems they have is they can never upgrade because these legacy systems don't have APIs. So everything they've done breaks on the next version. So we have a platform to address that that enables clients to do way more than they could ever do before because they've got an actual platform to build things on. We have unique tools like algorithms. We have another one called Canvases where you can take an instant snapshot of your database and you can do that hundreds of times so you can instantly do modeling and forecasting and all the rest. And so it's the combination of all those things. It's not about saying you're just a better accounting system. It's about saying that we're fundamentally changing what you can do with this. When you're doing your quarter ends and your cash events in our system, it's being driven by the software product instead of having to do all the calculations in Excel or proprietary systems outside and just uploading the accounting. And it's about trying to say that justifies the move because of all these other benefits, not just that it's accounting. So I agree with what you're saying. However, examples of the past have proved that you can build very big businesses by just being a better system. Not to knock anyone, but all view is one that comes to mind. Now they do a lot of other things now, but that's a platform that I believe does things differently from you, but they just were a better version of the incumbents of Investran eFront to start in the fund accounting space to some extent. What makes you say that you need to be a totally different solution? Because if we run with your example, AllView, I wouldn't have said is a disruptor. It was incrementally better than InvestRat. But that was really it. It was the same architecture, the same kind of approach and everything that underpinned the technology. It was just on a more modern Microsoft stack. And so that's why it never really replaced InvestRan. It got into a market that Investron wasn't heavily in, in the more small to medium kind of tier area, but it wasn't going around replacing it at any of the top tier firms, and the top tier firms were still choosing Investron. What's interesting about what we're doing is about 60% of our new clients are actually ripping out Investron or Refront and replacing it with our system. So in that regards, Allview went into a space and won new deals, but they never really heavily replaced existing ones. And that's what makes us a disruptor is that we are. In a world where having something work and being good enough is probably the 
most important thing, right? The calculations need to be correct. The system needs to work. That's more important than the most beautiful user experience. How do you think about being a disruptor? And how do you think about convincing the likes of these very large firms to say, hey, I'm going to go off of an incumbent system, which may have its issues, but I know it works, to a totally new platform? I don't know if we've got long enough in the podcast to go through all that. But yeah, there's definitely a lot that you have to do around credibility. We were fortunate when we started and we initially got a round of funding that we made sure that they were all strategically aligned. And one of those investors is Lauren Isovich. She's the founder of Investran. And so that adds a ton of credibility instantly because one of our competitors, the founder, is backing us and explaining why they should move off of that system and onto us. I think more generally, though, we've made a big thing about hiring senior people. We're not hiring graduates. We're hiring people who are experts in the industry for 15 plus years. They can instantly talk to any client credibly and explain everything they've seen and tell clients how they should be doing it. And then even then, with the larger firms, we're still going through anywhere from three, six, nine-month proof of concepts where we're taking the data, we're going through it, and we're actually showing them how it works in our system. And we have a lot of more modern tools around automated testings and things to give credibility around scale and areas that the legacy systems don't have. So, you know, there's no short answer to that, especially within this industry. Like people are head of operations basically describes it as far as these firms are concerned, replacing their GL is like open heart surgery. It's a very sensitive operation for them. And so there's a lot that you need to do in order to show them that you're the right choice. On that point, which is, I think, a really important point for other founders in this space who are trying to build software or investment products, for that matter, that sell into very large institutional customers, What do you think are the most important lessons you learned from whether it's brand building, whether it's working with these larger customers to convince them why they should work with a startup? What were some of the most important lessons you've learned in that process that would be helpful as founders try to do the same in this market? Fortunately, we had done this before, so we weren't new to it, but it takes enterprise software sales, regardless of this market, but just in general, take about nine plus months. When you're an unknown startup, you've got to assume it's at least double that, if not more, because one of the biggest things they're going to be evaluating you, even if they love your product and you know you are that disruptor, is just the risk. As far as they're concerned, no one gets fired for buying IBM. They can still stick with the legacy technology and they'll be fine. However, if they pick you and it doesn't turn out right in a year, then they're going to get fired. You've really got to be finding the right firms that have a massive pain problem that you genuinely solve. And you've got to find the right individuals who want to build out that solution with you. What you're essentially looking for with these types of firms, I think at the beginning are partners, not clients. And that's what we said all of last year and our first year. It's what we say today to existing clients. You're not clients in the first couple of years. You're all partners and we're all in this together. What are the ways in which you create that dynamic where they feel like partners. Are there sweeteners you have to provide? Do you have to enable them to be investors? And then there are obviously pros and cons with that. How have you approached that dynamic partnership instead of customer? We don't want them to be investors. There's obviously going to be strategic alignment with certain firms, but you don't want to generally go out and do that, particularly in the industry we're in, because everyone can be an investor and then everyone feels left out. 
what we generally do is certainly at the beginning, you're going to be offering discounts on your, on your product. But a lot of what we're doing at the beginning is saying, we're going to solve exactly what your problems are on our platform more than the legacy system. So not only are we going to do what they do, we're going to cover more things, additional automations that you want to solve for. And you'll be a part of that. You'll have access to the senior team. If you work with us three years from now, you're going to be working more than likely as a standard client with more processes or partners around it rather than working with the founders and the senior management team and everyone else. And when you have issues, when you have new functionality you need or we're working with you and you want certain functionality solved, then that gets turned around. That's what we're working with you with. Like everyone that we worked with last year were taking releases every week or twice a week. It was very much about iterating with them, going through everything and making sure that they feel a part of that process because they are. We're building out that functionality for them to solve for that client so that we can have it generalized to work for the market, which is also why I go back to talking about partners. It's not just that you're saying that they're partners, you're genuinely looking for those partnerships. You would rather have in the early days a large complex firm that can be a good partner that helps you solve a hundred different use cases that you can generalize and work within the market, then have a client who's small, doesn't help you solve any of those things and isn't something that you can reuse at the next client. You are genuinely looking for partners in those early days because you want to solve their problems, help it build out your product and take it to market. That makes a ton of sense. However, I can see the other side of this which presents a challenge for resource-constrained startups, as any startup is, and I'm sure you were in the early days before you raised a decent sum of money, especially in a space like this where many of these larger firms have a desire and a need to customize. How do you balance building standard solutions that then scale to many customer types or many similar client types versus the need early on when companies want to partner with you instead of the just customers. And they then want to partner with you because they feel they can exert leverage around customization. Uh, that's why we have the platform approach. This is an industry where everyone has a different version of the legacy products to some extent. So we create a platform and when clients want XYZ feature, the first thing we're analyzing is, is that something specific to them? Or is it something that can be solved through configuration with the platform? And if it can't be solved through configuration with the platform, if we enhance configuration of the platform, can you then configure the platform to solve it? And we look at it that way because the more enhancements we put into the platform, the more we haven't done anything bespoke for the client at all. We just configured it bespoke for the client, but we've got that capability to reuse on every other client. But it is really about building out platform capability versus building out some feature button that's specific that you're then saying is in every version of your software where you don't want it to be. That must be a fascinating balance early on. Have you had any cases where customization turned into other customers where this customization was not only helpful for this early partner that you worked with, but then the realization came that all these other customers who are similar to this certain customer needed this custom feature as well. It happens all the time. That is the point of building out the features in the platform because they then are available to all of our other clients and they can use them in different ways. 
A good example is our Canvas technology. We created this technology we call Canvases that takes an instant snapshot of your entire database. doesn't matter if it's 200 gigabytes or 200 terabytes, and you can create hundreds of those. Obviously, it solves for modeling and forecasting and all the rest because you can just create a Canvas, change transactions, change exchange rates, run recalcs, rerun your waterfall, run a report, see what the effect is, and throw the Canvas away. And it's incredibly useful for that. But one of our very first clients wanted to use it as a workflow tool. They wanted to say that work was done in the Canvas and then approved and promoted from that into the main system. So as we built out functionality in the platform that gave workflow capability around it, a lot of our other clients started reusing that same type of approach and saying that we can use Canvases for this other use case as well. You've mentioned that you have a different approach and knowing the incumbents, knowing people who work there and knowing what you're doing, it does feel like you are taking a really revolutionary approach through this platform-based concept. Walk us through why Lemon Edge is so different. It really comes from the fact that we've spent 20 years in the industry in four different companies building out partnership accounting systems. And all of that hindsight has gone into the product and the platform and building something that solves for today's complexities. The biggest advantage we have, if I'm totally honest, is that we got to rewrite everything from scratch a couple of years ago with all of that hindsight. If Investran or Refront or Allview could rewrite their products from scratch today, knowing what they know, they'd look nothing like what they are. And that's really our biggest advantage. Obviously, we've got all that hindsight. We've poured it in. We've made sure we're using the latest technologies. We've taken a platform approach because we know this industry and everyone customizes everything. And it also gives us the ability to move in other verticals. So we have all these different reasons behind the approach that, that we're taking. And they are to solve for all the problems we've seen previously in the industry. But fundamentally, it comes from the fact that we have the luxury of starting again. You mentioned that a few years ago, you were able to rewrite everything. What was the light bulb moment for you that made that happen? I think it was a combination of factors. I was in New York for six years. I left New York, came back to the UK to start the company with the idea of going around London and networking a lot, but COVID hit. And so I spent 18 months in my bedroom building it out. But I think it's something I've always wanted to do. It's taken a while to get everything in place and all the uh, the team and everything in place, but the timing was right. On that point, you worked at one of the big incumbents, Efront, which was acquired by BlackRock for over a billion dollars. And then you also built your own fund solutions business and then worked for a large private equity fund slash alternative asset manager, Centerbridge, to do this and help transform their, their middle and back office. What did you learn from those experiences that's really informed you as you've built Lemonage? I think you take away something different from each stage. I worked at some companies prior to Efront. When I worked at Efront, I think I knew how to do things better. What I really learned at Efront is how good they are at sales, but also how important that is. The flip side to that argument is that you could have the best product in the world. If no one knows, it doesn't mean anything. So it is important. You've got to get out there. You've got to market it. You've got to let people know what you can do. Working for Centerbridge was very fortunate. At the time, they were one of the top 50, but they were known as one of the top 10 in the world in terms of complexity. Being able to work from the most complex problems, solving for them, particularly at scale, means that we know we could put all of that knowledge and hindsight into a platform, which means that 
we can go to the market and we don't have to rebuild everything as we go up. Instead, we can just go down that scale in the market. Interesting. You talk about going down market and you've created this much easier to use platform. You talk about building a low code, no code solution that's become a bit of a buzzword in the enterprise software world. For good reason, it actually enables people in various ways across various industries to interact with systems and numbers and and data in very different ways. What does that mean in your world? And why is this so revolutionary for the space? I think low code and no code, you're right. It's a buzzword. And I think it probably has, suffers from the problems that cloud as a buzzword suffers from. But to me, no code is basically the ability to configure your product to an extent, to be able to manage it, to not have to write code and be able to design different screens, add fields, those types of things. Low code is the ability to then step into that and write some form of code, whether it's as simple as formulas or scripting or whatever, that would help tie a lot of those features together. What we have is we've built the product as an API from the ground up, and we use that API to build our own product and to build the private capital solution that sits on top. So what we're giving to clients is this no-code experience where they can use designers, but what the designers really do is write the code and load it. So they can take the code, and if they've got development teams, they can actually write the full code. So with our larger clients, we have a private repo that their development teams have access to where they can contribute to that, but build out examples and everything else. And everything they build in our platform is exactly the same as how we build it in the platform. And that's the key approach is keeping it a real platform that their approach to building something is the same way we would build it. So we're not doing anything different behind the scenes. I think what's revolutionary about it, and like I say, I think when you hear local no-code in the market, there's a lot of ranges to what that software actually provides. And I don't think it, most of them cover exactly what we're saying. Like They won't allow you to go into the code and actually write something fully like we do, or just drag and drop at the other end fully. But there's always a range in between those things. But we provide that. I think what's revolutionary about it is we're probably the only one in the world that does that with a with an integrated multi-ledger, multi-currency transaction engine that understands how to allocate transactions through thousands of different legal vehicles. There's plenty of no-code, low-code applications out there, but they're all around data and workflow. They're not around bolting that into your GL. This is a really interesting point because what you're talking about is the automation of numbers and data. Financial services in many respects is zeros and ones, and I think some people argue that this could be completely automated with technology. Is there a world, thanks to innovative solutions like your building and others and advancements in technology, where there doesn't need to be any human intervention involved and the code can just do its job? I don't think so. There might come in some way towards it. But the way we look at it is what we're enabling is more automation on the less complex end. Ultimately, these firms, particularly in private equity, are constantly innovating every year how they structure their carry model, for instance, and how they do things. They're incentivized to iterate that. And so that innovation, we're really freeing up people's time to be capable of doing that 
are focusing on that, whereas the automation of standard calculations or standard transactions and all the rest can be done without them having to focus too much on it. So you're always going to have a demand for that kind of skilled accountant, senior controllers, et cetera, because there's always going to be more complexity that's coming up in the industry that needs to be put into the system that they can do through configuration or whatever in our product. But we are helping automate more of the manual processes or traditionally manual processes. Do you think that a lot of funds want automation of those processes and they can run leaner teams? Because alternative asset managers are businesses at the end of the day too. And the higher gross margin, the better. Is this the type of thing where this is also a keep headcount lower play by using a more tech-driven platform? Part of it might be that. We always describe it to clients about how it frees up more of their time to concentrate on these other ends. Part of it is really about them removing risk. There's so much manual processes and Excel-bound work and what they're doing, it takes time. And as they grow, all these funds are growing, they're getting bigger. As they scale, they can see that those problems are only going to multiply in terms of how long it takes to do things. But it's really about getting control of that in a scalable way. You can run small funds on Excel. That's okay. But as you start scaling, all of this becomes problematic. On that point, I'm curious whether or not you see a network play here. If you take Carta as an example, they use a software product, cap table management, 409A valuations, all the way down to the atomic unit of value being the share that an entity or an individual owns. Do you see a similar network play here, even though you're building a software business? And what I mean by that is you have GPs, all the positions they have the underlying asset level. You have LPs as well. And many of those LPs presumably are invested in a number of the GPs who are or could be your customers. Do you think there's something more here than just a software play? There is. There's a potential for all of those avenues and eFront and others have gone down some of those routes. We aren't doing that right now, particularly within the data space. We're saying clients host it, they host it within their own network, their own hybrid network, et cetera. We're very much concentrating on solving the problems for them. But as we grow, there's potential for all of these things, including partnerships. Like As a modern platform, we don't have to send text files back and forth for a CRM or deal flow or KYC AML products. We can integrate and have connectors to all of the new kind of entrants into the market and have an ecosystem of partners up that work with our platform. On that point, is this an industry, I'm talking about the private markets world, middle and back office, that wants or is ready for API connectivity and data sharing? Certainly internally within their own organization, yes. There's always been the talk about externally in terms of being able to connect to fund admins or vice versa, fund admins being able to go into their internal system and update things. And even for LPs to stop having to download a PDF and be able to just connect to an API and download the raw data that they want, sophisticated LPs, that is. I think there's a demand for all of those things. I think it's been slow for that being provided in the market, but it is something we provide. Certainly internally within an organization, they want the API connectivity with their other products. But depending on that organization, they want to expose some of that to their own clients, and they can. Fund admins can expose parts of our API to say that LPs can just, instead of downloading PDFs, can just 
pull the data in a raw format that they want. Why start with alternative investment funds and fund accounting? You've mentioned that you've built a platform. You started in a particular place. You have one solution called Private Capital Solutions. Why start there? It's my background. It's what I've done for the last 20 years. We know the industry. We know the competition. It's a very small world. Everyone knows everyone in the industry, so we knew how to sell into it. Uh, And I believe from previous experience in other companies, we can take this platform approach and work with partners in like insurance and others and build 80 to 85% of the platform is providing that enterprise functionality. And we just spend a month with a partner building those little bits on top, specific for policy administration, claims, adjudication, et cetera, for policy uh, insurance. And then we can compete with those legacy systems. But we have to do that with partners. And it makes sense to get the credibility in this space and the proof point that this is a platform that can work with massive firms and be able to go to partners with that proof case and say, we'll work with you in these other industries. Your answer to this question makes me go to what are some tech companies that have gone down this path and done that? And from your perspective, are there any companies that you truly admire in the software world that you're like, oh, when I think of Lemon Edge, this is how I've conceptualized the business, or this is the North Star type of business I want to be? No, not really. No, sorry. In the space that we're in, in back office accounting, private capital, it's such a outdated space. The legacy suppliers are 20 plus years old. And so really the one thing that we're focusing heavily on is staying a software company and being a software company that specializes in complexity first and foremost. Because I think one of the biggest problems with the other vendors, not just in this space, but in other financial services spaces, as we talked about before, is that they make a lot of their revenue or the bulk of their revenue through services. They're really services companies, which is why they haven't moved their products on. And we want to stay as a software company. I think to answer your question, it's not so much that we have a software company that we admire or want to follow. It's just that most of the software companies in this back office space are so legacy that we know we just want to do the modern approach of being a real software company. That makes total sense. What do you think the challenges are with building software for alternative investment funds? Because you're a modern software company, but in an industry that really has not been touched by innovation and transformation in many respects. I think the reason it took us so long to do it is that the barrier to entry is enormously high. There are not really going to be startups that challenge us in this particular space because in order to do so you've got to build back office accounting system and there's very few people who know how to do that there's certainly people who can try it and if if they've never done it before they're going to make all the same mistakes people did 20 years ago have to have worked at two or three companies understand all the various different problems done it for 15 plus years before you can really do it yourself and know how to solve all those problems. There's few people who can do that. I think that's a really important point in this industry. You also have a wealth of knowledge of this space for quite some time. Where do you think private markets are? And what do you see as the vision for the world of private markets as things continue to be built out, both in front office distribution innovation, but also middle back office innovation, particularly around the data side. For us, I think there's a 
an enormous scope of opportunity. There's the traditional angle of saying that we do the back office accounting and can challenge the incumbents in that space, but they never really got out of their niches. What's exciting is because we have a platform is to be able to offer more than just that, being able to work with hybrid funds. No one's really fully solved that. Um, but we have a real allocation engine that not just does the partnership allocation for closed-ended funds, but deals with open-ended subscriptions and redemption. We're working with partners in the hybrid space. We can work within the hedge side. We're working on GP allocations, which is pretty much predominantly done in Excel anyway. Credit allocations. It's expanding the scope. You look at what the legacy systems do, Efron and Investran, they're just stuck in that fund accounting and they can't really move out of it. Whereas we're taking that broadly across private capital and see the, the whole area as opportunity to use the platform. I think what you're getting at here is this is an industry where there's so much complexity and you need to have deep knowledge in order to understand the problem set and then understand what the customer needs Yeah, and then do things like customize. On that point, you have a few strategic investors in the business. Lauren, founder of Investran, as you mentioned, is one. Another is an institution like Blackstone. What in your mind is the value of having a strategic investor in a space from the perspective of them understanding the problem as a customer? It goes back to what we were talking about with partnerships. It's finding that right set of anchor clients that can really work with you as a partnership as you build out. You don't want an initial set of clients that are just clients. You want them to work with you and be part of that journey. And obviously Blackstone has a tremendous depth of knowledge and range of knowledge across a variety of asset classes. That means that from our perspective as a platform, there's so much we can leverage in terms of having them as a partner to help us into areas that we're not necessarily in, help us get that expertise. It's about finding that right fit being able to offer us something that we wouldn't have been able to do ourselves. It's an interesting question when you think about bringing on strategic investors. There are pros and cons, but in a space like this, it feels like the pros outweigh the cons. I think so. I think there's different schools of thought, but you definitely don't want lots of strategic investors and you always want to keep control, but particularly private equity as a strategic investor, they deal with buying and selling companies all the time. They have the processes, they know what they're doing. So they're good strategic investors. As long as you have one that can help you in that partnership sense, then I think it's a good fit. It certainly is for us. The other place where my mind goes with that is if you start with the largest firms, with the most assets, most data points, most complex problems, it must only get somewhat easier to go down from there. I would say so. That's certainly the idea. You'll always find plenty of exceptions to that with people with different sets of complexities. You can get small funds that have tons of complexity in them. But it's a similar approach we're trying to do in different areas. So like working with large VCs, working with large secondaries, trying to work with firms, and they don't have to be the largest, but represent a large chunk of the complexity in their niche. They're good partners because if we solve those complexities for the most complex VC fund out there, then we can take that as a package thing to the VC market. It's definitely about being able to work with the right partners and certainly work with ones that represent the complex end of those firms. I think that's a great point. And on that point, we talk about investing. 
I always like to end this podcast asking everyone the same question, which is on the point of investing, what is your favorite or most interesting alternative investment? I'd have to say us. It's a great answer. You are by far not the only one who has said that. (laughs) It feels like a get out, but yeah. No, it shows conviction, which I think when you think about what you're building, you have to go against so much inertia and so much kind of institutional pull because the industry has gone one way for so long. You have to create something so different, like you said, and fighting against that that tidal wave effectively to build something better and different, which you're in the process of doing, which is fantastic for the space. So great to learn more about Lemon Edge, hear your thoughts on such an interesting space of private markets that really is ripe for innovation. So thanks, Gareth, for coming on the Elko's Mainstream Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Elko's Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going to-